Hey folks, Scott Weingart here, and this is another MCRIT shadow boxing episode where we take a group and we run them through a case, and uh, it's usually bread and butter case, usually not crazy stuff. And then at key points during the case, we pause, and you're supposed to pause as well. It's basically when you hear this sound. And then you should think about what you would actually do if you were presented with this case. And then you hit play again, and you could uh, hear what we thought. Uh, it doesn't mean we're right. It's just, you know, what we thought. Usually, I'm with a group of my former fellows. That's the case this time, and we have one case presenter. And uh, we go through a case, and I think you might get some learning points on it. But even if you don't get specific learning points from us, what you get is the contemplation of the case and then seeing how it actually turned out. And that leads to greater learning. It's based on the shadow boxing concept from Gary Klein, a way to uh, get expert level knowledge and perspective on your own thinking. So with that, let's roll right into the shadow boxing episode for this month. All right, and the discussants today, you have Tom Kearns, who is the presenter. He is an amazing EM resident at the Yale program. And then you have two of my former fellows, Christina Liu, ED Critical Care in Connecticut, and uh, Ryan Barnacle, ED Critical Care, now at Brown, formerly at Yale. All right, let's roll then. We have a 73-year-old female who's going to present to her one of our resuscitation days. She has a past medical history significant for coronary artery disease, status post-stenting in the past, atrial fibrillation on Eloquis, severe mitral regurgitation, status post-valve replacement, previous cabbage. She has a history of ischemic cardiomyopathy with a baseline EF of 29%, a left bundle branch block, status post-ICD placement, also has a history of COPD, and her chief complaint is going to be dyspnea, as well as nausea, vomiting. Her triage vitals are remarkable for a blood pressure of 94 over 43. Her pulse is initially measured at 158. Her respiratory rate is measured at 22, a temp of 97.5 Fahrenheit. And her oxygen is just listed, or oxygenation is just listed as 96% on unclear oxygen. So then what did you find on her physical exam? On her physical examination, you see an obese elderly female in obvious respiratory distress, probably breathing at a slightly higher clip than advertised. She's tachycardic, she's cold to the touch, and she's pale. So I guess you have what sounds like an a elderly female, she's an obvious extremist. Blood pressure, you said, was borderline, it was 94 or 43, heart rate is 158. And overall, it looks, you said she's cool to touch, so it looks like she has poor perfusion. So what are your immediate priorities in the first minutes after her arrival? Yeah, sure. My The other thing that I would add is that as soon as we got her on the monitor, her heart rate was all over the place. So it seemed anywhere from one teens to 170. And so my gut was, this is a fib. And I'm mostly here just to bear witness to my foolishness. So the audience and I'm going to try not to be too loud. But yeah, my initial impression was knowing her history pretty quickly and the way she looked and cool to the touch. I thought she was in cardiogenic shock. And my, my priorities were going to be to support that blood pressure right off the bat with vasopressors is what I was initially thinking. All right. I agree with all that. The constant problem 
we run into in these circumstances. Is the hypotension rate-related or is the rate a compensation for the hypotension? And oftentimes, you just have to assume whichever one is going to be worse in the individual scenario and just take a guess, and then you rapidly discover whether you're right or wrong. You have a wide complex tachycardia with irregularity. It's not typical of standard ventricular tachycardia, though it still obviously can be. And, you know, the safest thing is to assume the worst on these kind of patients. Until proven otherwise, I'm going to assume that the blood pressure needs to be supported independently of the rate because that's going to keep me safe. I'm going to err on the side of making a decision that's going to keep me protected. Obviously, the opposite way to go that would send you into trouble is you say, oh, this blood pressure must be all related to the rate. So we'll just give her a rate slowing agent, a calcium channel blocker, a beta blocker, what have you. We'll slow her down and her blood pressure will get better. And most of the time that'll be true. But when it's not, you look really bad because if that heart rate was a compensatory mechanism that was keeping them at 90 systolic and now all of a sudden they're at 50 systolic, you don't look so smart. So I agree with Barnacle in these cases. I'm going to address this rate for sure, but there's no reason not to support her blood pressure in the interim and give yourself a buffer of safety. So I think vasopressors in this circumstance are great. And while we determine some additional information, let's get a 12 lead actually to figure out if we could discern what is actually going on better than just simply rapid and wide like you'd see on the monitor. So yeah, I think at this point, put the patient on peripheral vasopressors, norepi sounds great, and then let's get some more information. Okay, at this moment in time, are you going to shock? Are you gonna keep going, trying to find more information, potentially medically managing the patient, or are you just gonna go right to electricity? Figure out what you are going to commit to. And I think before we move forward, this is this moment was like the really crux of the case here. Which pathway are you going to go down? Because for the audience, especially the residents listening, if you're simplifying things down to the most basic, you have an unstable patient with a rapid heart rate or seemingly irregular. And what does ACLS tell you to do? I think it says to just shock them. And there comes problems with that because now are you going to sedate an unstable patient to shock them? So I think you have to force yourself to slow down before you just fire from the hip. And that's... I totally agree. And I think you've elucidated that pretty cleanly, but you've smuggled in some stuff in your explanation of why it's difficult there that doesn't actually exist in ACLS. So let's be really clear. ACLS is a course for people that are not trained at resuscitation. And what ACLS would tell you to do in this circumstance as a hip, shooting from the hip reflex is shock the patient. They don't say anything about sedating the patient. And therefore, they don't have to worry about the complexities of issues you mentioned. Patient's going to be absolutely miserable. We've all seen patients who we've shocked without any sedation, and it's not fun. And there's a smell of burning flesh, and they are not happy with you. But in not sophisticated at resuscitation practitioner who came across this patient and cardioverted them, probably gonna be okay. It's just not, we don't do that, not because it the ACLS is not right, but because we could give a higher level of care than that. We could be more particular. We could say, if we're gonna shock them, we are going to sedate them. How do we do that safely? Do we need to go down that road because the pain in the butt and it adds complexity to the case? Or can we figure it out it out without having to shock them. So we've added the complexity on because we're better practitioners than ACLS. But the pure ACLS says nothing about sedating that patient. They would say, this patient's unstable, they're hypotensive, they have a rapid rhythm, 
just give the electricity. The patient will be upset, but that's okay because you've saved their life is ostensibly their line of logic. Fair. So as far as figuring out what came first, is it hypotension because of the rate or the rates because of the hypotension? I understand you guys did an ultrasound. So Tom, what did you guys see on the ultrasound? Well, let, me, let me preface that huh? because I think even before the ultrasound, we haven't seen a 12 lead. I'd like oh, to see Oh, and a 12 lead. And, but even with that being said, it's 170 or 168 or what somewhere in that range. In general, that's not going to be an old person's compensatory rate. Now, if it was like Barnacle, I might believe it. I might believe that he could get up to 160, 170. He's still a relatively in-shape guy. As we get older, your chances of getting there 170 compensatory doesn't really make a lot of sense. And this lady is elderly enough that I got to imagine that for, whether it's the absolute cause or simply contributory, that 170 is not pure compensation or 160 or what have you. When you get into the 150s, 160s, it's a gray zone, 170s, 180s, I think it's probably dysrhythmia. We'll see how this plays out, but I just wanted to put that out there. All right, so what do we have for a 12 lead? Maybe just describe it for the listeners. They could go to the show notes and look at it, but maybe just give them a description. So that would be jumping ahead. Oh, okay, because uh, you didn't have a 12 lead at this point? Yeah, so I think that would be one of my points is we really got to prioritize a 12 lead EKG. You cannot assume you know what the rhythm is based on looking at the monitor. And so we we went with ultrasound first before the 12 lead, and I think that would be one of the learning points. All right, so your ultrasound bias has come into effect. You've yes, done the critical now, error of using that tool for everything now and ignoring it. And for those listening, this is me putting my foolishness right out there. Yes, you're a, a man with a true desire to improve based on the desire to put one's errors out and air them for the world. It is an admirable quality. Okay, so we have an ultrasound first. Let's stick with how the case progressed, which is the shadow boxing way. What do we have on an ultrasound? Ultrasound revealed for left ventricular systolic function, dilated LV, as well as diffuse B lines. And based off of that data, we called respiratory to help with BiPAP given the increased work of breathing and apparent hypoxemia. That being said, we were also struggling to actually measure most of our values at this time. Blood pressure was difficult to manage or actually ascertain and reliable SpO2 was also difficult to ascertain, but we put her on BiPAP based off of the findings of increased respiratory effort and the echo findings. All right. I think BiPAP is reasonable uh, as a temporizing measure. And again, it, it all might be secondary to that rate. So uh, absolutely temporize, just the same way we put vasopressors on to temporize. But when you tell me we're having trouble getting values like pulse ox, then that tells me the patient's in an acute state of malperfusion that has to be corrected immediately. That's a bad sign when you are no longer able to get pulse ox waveform. Uh, that is not a respiratory issue. That is a perfusion issue. And it makes me really scared. And if epi, um, norepi was already going, great. We'd bump that up. If it's not, then giving push dose pressors is really key. And we now have a study saying that epinephrine doesn't increase the heart rate any more than phenylephrine. That was in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. So as a result, I just don't care about phenylephrine anymore. Everything is epi all the way for push dose pressors. And I certainly would give this patient a push dose if they are not registering saturation at this point. And that's going to go along with what you mentioned earlier of the cold extremities. All of these things should make you very scared of an acute state of malperfusion that does not progress to a good place. And so now you got the EKG afterwards. And so Tom, do you want to describe to the listeners what, what the EKG showed? 
Yeah, so we're seeing a wide complex tachycardia plausibly appears regular, though interestingly enough, the patient's heart rate is varying a lot on the monitor, but that's what we're easily ascertaining from the 12 lead here. Yeah, just to give an impression to the listeners, it looks like what you'd expect VTAC to look like is what I'd say, which doesn't mean it's not an aberrancy. It absolutely can be. They look very similar. There's all those scoring systems and various rules. I don't care about those so much. I don't know, maybe Lou or Barnacle, you differ on that. And I've learned the rules. Look, we hung out with Pendle. All of us have been exposed to all of the possible ways, the various Brigada criteria for VTAC versus aberrancy and all of that stuff. But honestly, at the end of the day, I've always found that if I just treat them like VTAC, then I always win. Like, I just don't see the utility of the mental masturbatory effort of trying to figure this out. It, it might affect disposition. It might affect downstream what they do with this patient, whether they need to go to a cath lab or what have you. But my immediate decisions for the emergency department, if I just assume in the right patient population, elderly patients, structural heart disease, that it's VT, I, I always look good because if we don't think it's a possible antidromic conduction of atrial fibrillation in the setting of an aberrant pathway like WPW, and you give something like amio, say, then it treats both, right? If you wind up having to shock, it treats both. If you even wanted to give a denison to, to give a trial, it works for both, right? Like it might actually have e efficacy for VT, might not. All of the things we do, if you just in your mind say, this is VT until proven otherwise, you just wind up looking pretty good. What are your thoughts on that, Barnacle or Lou? Yeah, actually, uh, I, I want to ask Tom before we spoil it <laughs> to describe the, what were we debating here, basically? And getting to Scott's point, was this even worth debating? Yeah, there was a discussion of whether or not we can medically manage this versus whether or not we needed something like electricity. Okay, there you go. Should you debate this or should you just shock? Should you go with straight up ACLS or should you consider medical management? That being said, we were, patient's respiratory status was compromised and we were wondering if sedating would be a problem if we could potentially medically manage with something like amiodarone and get her to come out of the rhythm, then potentially we could be doing okay. There was a question of whether or not, uh, I guess we were trying to define extremists for ourselves for the patient because she was still like talking to us. Her blood pressure was like a little bit difficult to manage, but we weren't entirely sure why. We were going to work on getting an arterial line to find out the truth for ourselves. But this was the kind of internal debate that was occurring at the time. And I think just circling back, you mentioned Pendle and for the oddity, and that's Dr. Pendle Meyer's absolute electrocardiogram genius. And I've certainly been known to use my Pendle in the pocket for stable patients and shoot him an EKG every now and then, and he's amazing and always willing to help. Unfortunately, this wasn't the time to be consulting someone from North Carolina in the middle of the night. And so I had my calipers out and I was trying to convince myself it was regular or irregular. But at the end of the day, I felt it doesn't matter. Let's just, why are we wasting time debating this? Scott was just saying. And I think for the residents listening, especially in intense moments like this, you have to just simplify things. And unless you're absolute electrocardiographic genius, it's not worth stumbling over your own feet. Yeah, I agree. I think that when you're in the moment, when the patient is somewhat crashing around you and you have other patients as well, it's better just to assume the worst. Just make everything easy. There's so many decision paths along the way, and I'm sure there's all these factors. And if you just see the end goal and go towards it, it's like, all right, at worst, this is a wide complex tachycardia. 
and just go forward in that path. There's so many decision pathways. This one, you, just, you have to make it easy for yourself. And I think and in the uh, middle of the night, there's no one else to talk to this, to, to talk to about this either. Yeah. Cardiology isn't going to be too happy when you call them to have a discussion about interpreting EKGs. And Tom made a good point. She was in that gray zone. Are we really calling her unstable when she's talking to us and obeying commands? And we have these questionable monitor readings. And I think we felt we can go slower if we're treating the hypoxia and treating the blood pressure and supporting her before we need to do something very quickly. Let's, as we say, resuscitate before we blank. That's the key. Yeah, look, I don't want to I don't want to steal people's reflexes if those reflexes are going to be utile. And resuscitate before you intubate makes a lot of sense because intubation kills you. Resuscitation before cardioversion doesn't have the same analogous nature. I'd phrase it as, if you're in doubt about what to do, shock. And you'll always avoid the lawsuit in those cases. And we have the capability of sedating patients in a hemodynamically stable manner. We could give a patient this old, if we gave a modicum of ketamine, we'd probably maintain blood pressure just fine. We'd maintain respiratory drive just fine. And we could shock them with, and I wouldn't have to fully dissociate them. They might perceive something occurred if you gave them 30 milligrams of ketamine. And they're, it's going to be annoying because they're not going to be up to really assess their mental status for a good 20 minutes or so. But we could get the job done. Atomidate probably also would have a relatively benign effect, especially if you have the patient on vasopressors. There's not too much room for Atomidate to mess up their vital signs in this circumstance, except for perhaps loss of endogenous catecholtone when you're giving it exogenously now. It's, that's also probably okay. So if people's inclination is to shock, then shock. I'd put this analogous to the LP scenario, right? If you think about doing a lumbar puncture, do the F in lumbar puncture. If you if your instincts say, I think I should shock this patient, just shock them. Now, we have a little bit more leeway. We trained in resuscitation. We think about this stuff all the time. We know the boundaries of how much we can maintain. And I think it would be perfectly acceptable as well to give this patient a shot at amiodarone, which is going to treat both an SVT and VT, and is going to predispose to any shock being more effective. There's a synergistic relationship between the administration of antidysrhythmics and the potentiation of cardioversion. So... I think I would be fine if you told me you did either of those two things. And the shock's always in your back pocket. Obviously, this is a patient you have the pads on, or if you're in like some real old school place, the paddles are actually located and at the bedside with some gel there. Preferably, the pads are on. If anything goes wrong, you're going to shock them. So yeah, I, I'd, go, I'd be fine with either way. Lou, what would you or your take be on how to progress here? I think as long as you have everything prepared, you can go either which way. Like you said, ACLS protocol or what EMS protocol is very black and white, unstable shock. Here, we have some room to play with. We have temporizing measures like you talked about, your BiPAP and your norepinephrine. And so you can always try amiodarone. And if the blood pressure tanks, then you shock or you can shock. I think, I think like you said, this patient's kind of in that gray zone. So as long as you have a backup plan, you can go whichever way you want. I think the more, I guess, looking back at the case, the more simple, the simpler answer is just shock and be done with it. But I think when you're there and you're in the middle of the decision-making, hindsight is 2020 here, I think you can, you had room to play. You had room to choose your path here. As long as you know that at worst, 
you always have electricity as your backup plan. Oh, Can I just a question real quick? Because I was debating, obviously, VT versus AFib with aberrancy. And so I was thinking, if this is AFib, it's probably secondary to something. And I was worrying about that. Do you have to worry about secondary causes to VT? Or is it much more a rhythm problem? Like you, you don't apply the same logic to that. All right. So the question in front of you now to contemplate is, do the secondary causes of VT, whatever's making the VT happen, really matter in terms of your management? Do you have to think about those? As opposed to, you know, if you have a patient in AFib, before you treat it, you should really think, is this compensatory or is this uh, de novo? Is this a rhythm issue or is this a compensatory hemodynamic issue? And the AFib is just a marker of the fact that the patient is compensating. So contemplate that, figure out an answer in your head, and then we will go further. Yeah, all the secondary causes of VT are ones you'd want to actually treat is the nice thing. So uh, yeah, I don't worry about it the same way. And what Ryan's alluding to is let's say you had a pulmonary hypertension patient who happened to be in atrial fibrillation as their baseline rhythm, and now all of a sudden they're in AFib at 155, 160, and they're hypotensive. And you look at that patient, you're like, oh, I better just slow down their rate. That's a good way to kill those patients because that's their version of compensation. That's the same thing as sinus tack in those patients. And slowing down sinus tack in a pulmonary hypertension or right heart failure patients, a, a good clean kill. It's really nice. It's really immediate. You get immediate feedback on the, your actions and you never do it again. Atrial fibrillation at 160 in a patient like that, you got to say, is this compensatory or not? VT is never going to be compensatory. It's going to have causes, but those causes are all things that are bad. So the worst that'll happen is because the cause is intractable, for instance, an ischemia or a scarring nidus of ventricular tachycardia, and you give all your antidysrhythmics, nothing happens. You know, that's the worst that's going to happen from a secondary cause you don't want. It's just not going to work. They're going to transition to the category of electrical storm, and they're going to need other treatment modalities like EP or cath lab to open up a coronary. Yeah, AFib is just Rapid AFib could just be the equivalent of sinus tack, is what you're alluding to, Ryan, in the superventricular rhythms, and it's just not the case in VT, as far as I know. Right. And before Tom tells us what we did, the other thing that was just making me hesitate was the overall rate was not as high as I would expect for VTAC. It never went above 170, which was throwing me off. I don't know, and- man. If you see it at 100, 110, you got to look ensconced, you know, what's going on here. I don't know, any anything greater than 140 is VT. Like that, that's the pretty standard presentation is somewhere between 160 and 200, I think is your like bog standard VT. Yeah. They don't get up into the 200s usually. That's usually something different. When you have a very rapid rate like that beyond this patient, I start worrying, is this atrial fibrillation with antidromic conduction in the setting of something like WPW? Almost always the VTs I've seen are less than 200, and usually 180, 170 is where they live. Yeah, and every time I was ready to call it VT, it would slow, it would slow down. I'd be like, what the heck is going on? Yeah, so, yeah no, I hear you. So I, I have a question. This is a, going back a little bit to your ultrasound findings. So you said the ultrasound, you had poor LV systolic function, diffuse B-lines patient, has increased work of breathing, and decreased SATs. So my question is, and the patient's hypotensive too. So the bedside echo, it sounds like she's fluid overloaded, but she's hypotensive. And 
All right, now here I'm about to jump on my former fellow, my amazing, brilliant fellow for a statement that I think she was just making in a preparatory fashion. But, you know, the way our relationship works in the fellowship is uh, we just like to jump on each other. And so why would I be about to jump on Christina here? Uh, figure out your own reasons. Figure out if I am correct or not, and then we will roll into what actually took place. Wow! I, I guess I, I, I thought I had trained you better, Lou. How? Can no, I, I mean say I'm, she's fluid overloaded. All we know is that she, there's backup. You are concerned that there might be some backup. Yeah, so that doesn't. I mean, we know scape almost always is a patient who is euvolemic. They're not fluid overloaded. In fact, most of them don't even have peripheral edema. All you could say from that lung ultrasound is that the patient has poor left-sided heart function. Okay, so let's just go, this is gonna be a generic question then. So I once had a cardiologist tell me that your blood pressure and your fluid status are completely separate. Would you ever diurese the hypotensive patient? <laughs> I have diuresed quite commonly hypotensive patients on vasopressors that have established a normal map. So I guess that's a different category than what you're really alluding to. You diary shock patients all the time. If you think their volume status is volume overloaded, then this is the entire nidus of the vexus exam to be yeah. able to actually ascertain, do we have signs of volume overload sufficient to cause organ malperfusion? But would I take a patient at 60 over 40 and make my first priority diuresis? No, absolutely not. Not that I don't think it would cause much problem. It's just not on the priority list. It's that volume overload is a problem of maintenance level treatment. It's not resuscitative treatment. We want to eventually get the patient to a good volume status because it mm -hmm. helps with their interstitial management. It helps with their edema. It helps with their perfusion and how far things have to jump along their capillary bed. None of that is like for life threats. That's all later on. This is why we tried so hard at MCRIT to change the paradigm of SCAPE, sympathetic crashing acute pulmonary edema, because people's first knee-jerk response was to give Lasix. And I'm like, maybe they'll need Lasix, maybe they won't. But either way, it's a completely irrelevant treatment to this patient dying in front of you. That's to be figured out three hours from now when they're stabilized and getting off their BiPAP. You could ask yourself, is it going to help to do some diuresis? And in that same vein here, a patient with interstitial edema, it, 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 the issue is not volume overload as an acute problem. Their issue is clearly if we get the left-sided heart function going, then they'll clear out their lungs in, in almost every case. You get bibasal or crackle, sure, maybe it's an overall body overload situation, but the kind of pulmonary edema we care about, like in this patient, is either scape or it's cardiogenic shock. And in both of those cases, Lasix mm -hmm. is a secondary treatment down the line. Would you ever think that the, I'm just arguing for, just for fun now. Yeah, of course. Would you ever think that perhaps the AFib with a baronsy, let's say it was AFib with baronsy, was being driven by a fluid overloaded state? Sure. Maybe the patient's in atrial fibrillation in some setting due to volume overload. I doubt it, but maybe. But they're not in rapid AFib because of volume overload. And I don't care about AFib. I care about the fact that they're in AFib with RVR that might be causing them to be hemodynamically unstable. So when I treat the RVR, then again, they get to that maintenance phase where we start asking ourselves, does the patient need some diuresis or not? But that's not an acute problem. You're not gonna, you're not gonna fix their AFib at 180 by giving Lasix. I could be pretty sure about that statement that I don't think you're doing anything good acutely for their rapid ventricular response by diuresing them. All right, so Tom, <laughs> tell, tell the audience what we did. 
And so what ended up happening is we did, we played it slow as has been discussed and the patient was still remaining as she was still communicating with us and everything. We were actually able to obtain some iStat lab work in the interim, which revealed an elevated potassium as well as an elevated creatinine from baseline. Her K was 6.2, creatinine was 1.73 from a baseline of around 1. And based off of those findings, we gave the patient some treatment for her hyperkalemia. We did end up giving Lasix, not really thinking much about the a little bit of the fluid state, a little bit of the hyper-K state. We also gave the patient some calcium dextrose and insulin. Patient was doing okay on the levofed that we had her on. We did have to take her off the BiPAP because she was expressing some nausea for which she received some Zofran. After which we did call cardiology on patient arrival and they were able to come down to the bedside. And we all three put our heads together at this point and said, I think enough is enough. We gave Amio. You forgot to mention that. That is true. We did. So we, so actually more towards the beginning of the case, we gave a bolus of amio and we actually gave a second bolus of amio without effect and someone's going to ask tom so we just have to make sure we get it out there what did her old ekg look like yeah her old ekg looked much different compared to the current ekg looked like a paste rhythm with a left bundle branch block this is a question i don't have the answer to it's it's always troubled me but people they see these old ekgs and if the morphology is similar to the morphology of the rapid rhythm. They just like, oh, this must be SVT with aberrancy. But there's not too many options on that tree. Why can't you have a VT that just is the same bundle branch block looking situation as what you have with your bundle branch block at baseline? It never made sense to me that just like we, we wash our hands, oh, it can't be VT because the morphologies look similar. There's not that many different morphologies. Can't it be VT with the same morphology as they have with their baseline bundle branch block? I don't know. No one's ever answered that question for me. Yeah. So I think at this point, we were deciding it was VT. Yeah. This clearly looked different based on what you're saying. So that's all the more support of what we could have assumed at the beginning, which is it's VT. All right. So your amio didn't do anything? Did it slow them down? Did it? No. All right, so you've given a 300 milligrams total of amiodarone, and now you have your cardiologist at the bedside. What took place now? Yeah, so at this point, we landed on the point that we were talking about later where we may have landed on earlier, which is to actually just shock the patient and see what happens. At this point, we gave the patient six milligrams of automidate and cardioverted with 200 joules, after which we had a significant change in the morphology, morphology of her EKG after which she slowed down substantially. I'll add that. We had, we had an A-line in, don't forget that. So we knew for undoubtedly that she was now hypotensive. And I think that's what kind of took that last barrier away to just shock her. All right. So where was the error that you keep portraying in this case? Because I don't see it. I Like, I don't understand. What was wrong well, with the management here? We're at, we're at minute 66 so, when we're shocking her. Uh, and, and so that... And I just, I just, hindsight being 2020, I think I just talked myself out of shocking her for far too long. We had the pads on her within five minutes ready to do it. And I don't know why necessarily we talked ourselves out of it. And so my takeaway, my big takeaway from this case is you can't make decisions based on the monitor. You, you need the 12 lead. And I think if the monitor was constantly at 170, I would have been, of course, let's shock her. So now I'm getting a better picture. So what you're saying is because you saw a variance in the rate, you convinced yourself this can't be standard VT because why would the rate not just be one number? And therefore you were going down different pathways. Is that correct? Yeah, I was looking for a secondary cause like and 
trying to just support her through that and lower the rate that way. All right. But I think the key part of this case, though, is that you put you implemented other things in between that gave you time to figure it out. Like you always knew that you had you could have just cardio for her. You thought about it off the bat, but you did supportive therapies in between that gave you time to investigate, I guess, a little bit more of the root cause. Yeah, no, well, for symptoms. Going along with what Lou said, I think the error would have been if you decided, oh my God, the monitor keeps varying rate. I'm just going to go with diltiazem. Oh, it didn't work. I'm going to go with more diltiazem. Yeah, that would have made you look like egg on your face. Like this person's missing that this could be VT. That's not what happened here. This is what I was mentioning. If you give amio short of a WPW circumstance, as mentioned, you're going to look good. Because when they the cardiology nerds come down and they're like, oh, it's SVT. You're like, no, I gave him amio. And if it's VT, it's like, I gave him amio, right? Like you, you, look, you look good in either circumstance. So yeah, I don't think you made the critical error. And there was no adenosine trial, which I think is fine because the two things in the differential were atrial fibrillation with aberrancy or VT, and that's fine. I have no problem when people give a adenosine challenge to these patients, so long as in the circumstances we're seeing here, if they convert, they don't send the patient home because we know there's VT that will convert with adenosine. So the critical error is if you give adenosine and they now have a normal rate to not admit them you got to admit them anyway if they're over a certain age. If they're 65, 70 or older, and even if they convert with a denison, they still needed admission. They still need a cardiology workup. So yeah, anything you did short of just vacillating to beta blocker, calcium channel blocker, you would have looked okay. And so you looked good. I'm sure cardiology didn't spurn the treatment you gave to try to avoid cardioversion. Is that correct? Did they mock you? What is the self-flagellation about here? I think I got to give credit to Tom because he right off the bat was like, why aren't we shocking this patient? And kept side-eyeing me. And I was like, just hold on and let me think. So Tom is one of our amazing residents at Yale and he definitely gets that credit. But Tom, cardiology did come down and roll their eyes and been like, why haven't you shocked this patient? Yeah, there there was also, they were also, they were hemming and hawing over the EKG for a second, but then like they were just looked at the patient and they were like, I think electricity is indicated here. Another thing that's an interesting point is this patient does have an ICD too. And I guess another thought is just, oh, maybe this patient would have been shocked out of VT by now with their ICD, but it turns out that the rate was set at 190, um, which is an interesting thing to think about. And I think this comes up frequently where patients will have an ICD placed, but the threshold is fairly high. So it gives you a second to pause. Yeah, you know, that's weird because honestly, the pacemaker doesn't care whether it's VT or AFib with aberrancy. It's just going to hit its rate threshold and shock. 190 seems high, but I'm no cardio- I'm no interventional cardiologist or EP doc, so I, what the hell do I know? But that seems high for a patient this age. It seems like they'd make that rate lower. Usually there's all, some other modalities that occur in betwixt before they get the shock, like tr- the attempt at overdrive pacing. And I don't know what that threshold was sent at, but usually the ICD will try that before shocking the patient just for patient comfort. But yeah. Uh, 170 is enough to do a patient in, so I'm concerned that 190 is their threshold for a patient could drop dead at 170, and they would have no intervention from the device stuck in their chest. It's weird. Can we talk about cardioverting and sedating a semi-unstable patient and anything that you do differently? Yeah, I think a few things come to mind. One is, in an ideal world, like when we're doing these elegant procedural sedations for something like a hip... I'd like that patient to be completely amnestic, have no pain 
whatsoever, not do the thing that's so typical of ED sedation where the patient, as the hip is going in, screams their head off. And sure, they don't remember it afterwards because you still gave a modicum of an agent like propofol, which is amnestic. But they were experiencing misery in the moment, even though they have no memory of it. Like the perfectly elegant sedation avoids that. The perfectly elegant sedation is you sedate them just long enough. They go into general anesthesia just for the period of time they're getting their hip pulled on. They come out immediately they're breathing on their own you never have to do any stimulation you never have to do any jaw thrust and you you get those every now and then this is not the case to look for that this is the case of i want amnesia that's it that's all i want and so you could get that with much lower levels of the agents we use you could use a small dose of atomidate like you folks did you could give small dose of ketamine. They're not going to be aware of it. They might be in that middle ground of partial dissociation where, you know, that's going to come through their dreams as something really weird when they get that shock. But they're not going to remember you shocked them. They're going to wake up. Maybe they're going to be like, I saw wolves and I was part of the wolf pack. But they're not going to remember you, you electrocuted their chest. Honestly, if you wanted to go full on ACLS, you could give the patient a couple of milligrams of midazolam right before you shock them. And they're not going to remember the shock and have no effects on the hemodynamics whatsoever. We can absolutely get the job done. I think at the very least, giving a little midazolam in a really unstable patient will get you through. They won't hate you. It's, it's painful, and the chest gets sore, but no damage is done from, to the patient with shocking, without sedation. There's no long-term damage, as long as the pads are placed hard. And that's if there's any key to this, it's like the problems all come when there's a very light placement of the adhesives of the pad on the chest, especially if there's chest hair. Because then when you get is arcing, you get a connection, especially for anterior, anterior placement of the pads or anterior lateral, you can get arcing between the two pads and that just fries your chest hair. They actually get burnt from it. That that sticks around. They're not going to forget the burn marks across their chest. But short of that, you're, you're pretty safe. So yeah, I, I would just be a little bit more circumspect with the doses of everything I give and whatever you're baseline comfort level is for sedation. Just use that and you'll be fine. I'm just scrolling through. I think there is some interesting stuff in the hospital course, but yeah, let's hear it. You know, she did, she her some of her other labs that came back that you might be curious about. She was acidotic with a gap of 19. She had that AKI, her BMP was 31,000 white count of 16. And after the cardioversion, she still did need some pressors. And so she left the ED on pressors. I don't know if Tom wants to walk us through the rest of the hospital course. Certainly. So eventually she was able to get seen by the electrophysiology team, which she made it to the CCU. And they interrogated the device, which actually revealed that she had what was revealed to be like a 41-hour episode of VT, which was interesting. It started quite a while before. And interestingly enough, when you actually started talking to the patient beforehand, she's just, I've been having this nauseous illness for the last couple of days, which is what she noticed more so than anything else, likely in the setting of this VT. They changed her threshold from 190 to 160. But the problem is, as we saw in our case, is that she wasn't always hitting that threshold either. She would be in these rates in like the 110s to the 140s. And she was still having symptoms and still feeling unwell, still needing support up in the CCU. And at that point, they planned to do a left heart cath to make sure that she was safe for an EP study. Left heart cath looked okay compared to prior. She was deemed to be okay for the EP study, after which they did an ablation of her VT focus while planning to continue amiodarone for her, as because if they were going to set the threshold any lower, any form of compensatory 
tachycardia would also cause her to get shocked too. So the solution was to try to ablate her and she was actually able to do well after that. All right. That's pretty classic emergency medicine decision, VT versus SVT, shock versus medical management. I think we've given good explanations for our rationale for each of those. You'll have to make your own choices based on your own learning and heuristics and cognitive extrapolation of the situation. What else do we have to add? A-line is your friend as always in these cases. A-line, I'll say for places that don't have the access to that, which is probably the predominance of emergency medicine, putting your blood pressure cuff on stat is a modality that people don't utilize enough. And that just means as soon as a BP reading is in, it's automatically starting for the next reading. So you'll have a Q1 minute blood pressure on these patients. And that's your poor person's A-line. And shout out to pharmacy too, because they were at the bedside with us and just helping us dose and drop the amio and everything and the automate. So if you have that resource, you got to make friends with them because they'll be a great asset in the recess room. Nice. Sounds like our learning points for this case was one, don't just trust a monitor, get your EKG. Two, electricity is your friend. It's always in your back pocket. And three, when in doubt, treat it like treat a wide complex tachycardia like VT. Nice. Yeah, to that point about the monitor versus 12 lead. The monitors in most places are set to what is actually appropriately called monitor mode. And that actually induces filtering of the EKG such that you get a cleaner pattern, but it does eliminate your ability to really discern STT changes and other things like that. So a 12 lead is always necessary. That being said, many monitors have the ability to switch into diagnostic mode it's just an option under that EKG settings tree. And that will give you something very close to a 12 lead if your 12 lead is not immediately available. In some places, they're still using separate machines to get the 12 lead EKG. It could be like 10 minutes to get that to the bedside. So you can actually change the accuracy and the real life discernment of the wave patterns by changing the mode your monitor is in on most monitors. All right. Anything else to add, anyone? Tom did a great job. Miss working with you, Dr. Kearns. You as well, sir. All right, Tom, thank you for joining us. Christina and Ryan, thank you as always for being part of the Shadow Boxing crew. And thank you to the listeners for sticking around and actually playing the game of putting your own cognitive decision-making on the line. All right, let's call that a wrap. Good stuff. <laughs>